What's up, world? This is Fafore. And this is Ifa Oshayun, and this is the Who Made Y'all Priest podcast, where we talk about our spiritual journeys, our everyday life experiences, and the issues of the time from the perspective of two people who just happen to be priests. We are back with season two, and as you can see, we've made a few changes because now you can see our handsome faces. Uh, we've made some other tweaks and modifications also. Uh, Every now and again, we will have guests on that will talk about their spiritual journey and add some perspective and hopefully some enrichment to the podcast. So, Ifa um, Oshayun, like I didn't know we was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the time this drops, we would have been on break for eight nine weeks. How's your break been? I ain't have a break. It's uh, a <laughs> we've been busy. We've been working. Um, it's been cool though. We've been working, trying to create content, um, things that we can bring you guys. Um, I was able to take some trips though. I was able to do a little bit of traveling and we're going to talk about that on a uh, future podcast episode. So how was your break? Man, my break was just like yours. It wasn't a break at all. You know, we've been working, talking about the podcast, talking to other people about the podcast. <laughs> right, I know right. some people probably getting tired of us talking to them <laughs> about the podcast, but we own it, man. We own it. We move. Right, right. So as Ifa Oshayun stated, um, we're going to make some changes. One of those great changes that we think that you'll like is that we're going to interview people. So today, in episode one, we do have that first interview. Um, this is the first time we ever had a guest on our right. show. And right. this episode, we are going to answer the question that is the name of our podcast, Who Made Y'all Priest? So we are going to introduce you to that man who made us priests. So, Aruluo, born Stephen Benjamin Clark Mackey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's like a good civil rights name. I know it ain't it. That's, that's a that's a Benjamin good... Clark. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> right, right. We're gonna start calling Baba by his middle name. <laughs> right, his middle name. Like, can you imagine a Stephen Benjamin Clark Mackey Boulevard in every hood in the country? <laughs> right, right, man. We're gonna have to do that, man. We're gonna have to get us some land, get us some hundred acres, and make that one Main Street. What will be Main Street? We're gonna call it right. Stephen Benjamin Clark Mackey. Yeah, we're gonna uh, petition every every hood in the country to do that. So. <laughs> but anyway, let me get back to my Luo's bio. Born Stephen Benjamin Clark Mackey. Chief Aluo Obafemi Fayemi Pega was initiated as a priest of Obatala in January 2004. In February 2005, he was initiated as a priest of Ifa in Akure Ando State, Nigeria, by his Aluo, Dr. Afalabi Pega. He is the founder of the Obafemi Institute for the Divine and Universal Study of Ifa. He, was con he has conducted over 700 rituals and ceremonies, and we've had the privilege and the honor to have participated in a couple of those. Right. Um, we welcome the Master Diviner, the King of the Opwele. Master Teacher. Master Teacher. <laughs> the Awo Mayagun of Ode Remo. Our Luo Baba Obafemi. Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> 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 How y'all doing? Man, we good, we're Bobby. glad to be here with you, man. We appreciate you taking out the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. I want to first apologize to the public 
I don't know if I should apologize for making y'all priests. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, it's good to be here. You guys have been doing a great job. I'm proud of y'all. All right. Definitely proud of you. Appreciate it, Baba. Bring now a you, different perspective, I say. Now, you know me and Oshayun, we always asking for favors. <laughs> always. <laughs> <laughs> so, we would be remiss if we didn't start this off by asking for a favor. And wanted to see if that you could pour libations and, you know, a little prayer for not only this podcast episode, but just our podcast. In I can do that. I can do that. Since y'all brought my books back. <laughs> All righty. Only tutu, only tutu, ele tutu. Tutu ori, tutu egun. Tutu orisha. We give praise and thanks to the spirit of Ifa. We give praise and thanks to the spirit of our ancestors. To our Uri, our divine spirits that made the decision, the contract, to come back once again to fulfill the journey. We ask that our ancestors come forward and bless us. But most importantly, we ask for the ancestors of the Omos to come and descend and be with them on their podcast today and future. Protect them from all evildoers. For those who come to criticize, let the criticism be, help, be a helpful tool to elevate them more so than anything as opposed to discourse. Let, it be, let them be strong. Let them be diligent. Most importantly, open up their minds, their corporeal library, their Akashic records to expand their knowledge, their wisdom, to bring forth information to those who watch this podcast. Ashe. 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 Thank you, Bible. Thank you. Thank you. I Ashe. felt that. Ashe. Ashe. Um, we also want to thank you um, for listening to the podcast. Now, I was surprised, actually, in, in O'Shea, when I talked about this, that you listen as much as you did and, right. and offer feedback and things of that nature. Um, what did you think about season one? I thought season one was good. I thought, uh, to be honest, there were a couple of episodes to where you could actually have went on a tangent and went more into uh, content about some of the subjects. Uh, I thought the Roe v. Wade was very instrumental because it's, very, it's a very controversial topic. But according to the times that we live in, 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 in regards to the Aquarian age, it's spot on, it's right on point. So it's topics like that that are mostly to provoke thought. And what you did, you provoked thought in season one with a few topics, but you also created controversy. Now, I'm not against controversy. As long as a person is speaking their truth and understand that it's not the truth, it's your truth. And I think some of the responses to the podcast was people truth, which is what you want. Because that helps you grow. It helps you to get a better understanding how to see your world when people can disagree. But when people come from an argumentative point, that particular vibration mostly tells you that you struck a nerve. You might have even touched upon a person's trauma, which is at the end of the day, you hope that they went home or they sat in their sacred space and said, wow, why did that push my button and pull my trigger? So I thought season one was very, very good. I thought it was very good. We appreciate that. Yeah, we definitely appreciate, appreciate that. And next time we got to go deeper. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. When we came over here, Bible was like, man, you could have went, went a little deeper on, the, on right. this and on that. Right. He was like, right. yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, as you know, our podcast 
one of the big things that we do is we share um, our spiritual journey and how we got here. So could you give us a, um, a brief summary of your spiritual journey? How I got here? Yes. Briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one of, one of the things that I look at is, uh, you know, the spiritual journey unconsciously starts way before you go through an Igbodu, an initiation. Uh, I remember coming home as a teenager, maybe 16, 17 years of age, playing basketball. And I remember going into the kitchen. Uh, it was midday, so it wasn't really dinner time. And then there were times because my mom worked two jobs, you know, we, we didn't really, she didn't cook every day. You know, sometimes there'd be leftovers. So she cooked a lot of one-dish things, you know, like... <laughs> for all the kids. And I remember coming home, you know, when I, when I uh, started understanding more about Obatala. I remember coming home one day from playing basketball and I go in the kitchen, I get some mashed potatoes, I get some white rice, I get like a glass of milk and just regular sliced bread. And I didn't think nothing of it. And I remember my mom walking by and say, you need something green. Need some greens, all that, all that starch, and I just kept eating. And then when I realized that that was this, uh, you know, you, you come into Ifai, you realize Obatala accepts white foods, right. and I'm a child of Obatala. Um, things like that unconsciously, you feel like you've always been connected to Ifai or the natural order of things. Right. Even if I've never gotten into Ifai, I had that moment. So maybe even in passing, someone told me I was a child of Obatala and I just kept it moving. I would have had a reference, but everybody don't get that reference. For me, how I got here um, has always been destined. Now that I'm older, uh, sitting with elders over on the continent, this has always been my purpose. This has always been my foundation. I couldn't have done this at age 20, 21, coming out of college. You know, I went, had an opportunity to play in the NBA. I played basketball in Europe, South America. <clears throat> if that would have catapulted, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. And so we have to accept our destiny as it is sometimes. And getting here is, very, is probably more interesting because when I was introduced to EFI, after about two years, I left it alone. It was too much egos. It was too much dogma that was being presented to me until I met my Luo who said, that's not Ifa. You know, that's some good old fashioned egotists at work with what little they knew at that time. And so when he introduced me to a lot of the cosmology and the makeup and the history, which is very important of the Yoruba people and that I began to really embrace because prior to that, being a priest in a comedic system uh, was my quote unquote years of being an Abarisha. Right. <laughs> you know, studying all the laws of opposites and the different cosmology of Kemet. So when I look back at that, you know, being here, you know, about to turn 65 years old and knowing how the last. 25 plus years of my life have been dedicated to study of African history, African spirituality. After being asked to leave the church in 93, you know, it's going on 20, what, 29, 29 years. So 
a lot of that I would probably say was more in depth and conscious of it, probably about 25 of that, because the first four I was still struggling with coming out of the church. And I was I was still embracing things like Shrine of the Black Madonna, Nation of Islam, Black Hebrew Israelites. I was still on the religious side of things, right. but trying to. So somehow the history and the spirituality crossed itself mm-hmm. to where you have this living tradition called Ifa, you know, because as, as a priest in, in the comedic tradition, uh, we knew our tradition was a lot more academic as opposed to practicalizing things. And so getting here is just part of the purpose. It's part of the destiny. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so hold on real quick. Uh, with your journey, the part that I really love hearing and I want those people to hear is about how you, uh, let's say, left the church. Right. <laughs> and well, specifically what, when you were on your way out, what the guy said to you. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, that was literally my third church in two years. Wow. Um, I had left. uh, That was, I can't think of it for, but it was Outreach Missionary Baptist Church, which was uh, a few blocks down from the, the actual street I lived on. And a controversy hit the church. The, 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 the minister was involved in an affair while he was doing a series on marriage, on marriage and the family. <laughs> and the church split. So they began to do this service at 11 a.m. and then another service at 4 p.m. The senior deacon took over or the, senior pa- the, the junior pastor took over the evening service. So they gave the primary pastor who was in the fought, I mean, uh, who was in the uh, uh, in the controversy, in the affair, they gave him the 11 a.m. And so the church, the remainder of the church, the other half of the church came in the evening. And it was a bunch of mess. So I left there and I went to this particular church. Um, and this was probably around 1990, 1991. And so I was there for a couple of years. And, you know, uh, it was a bigger church, uh, still in the hood. And I I was a Sunday school teacher and I had a particular age group. Well, in my age group, uh, I was teaching those individuals from around the age of 25 to 35. And some of the younger ones that was 18 to 24, 25 would stay a little later to come to my class. And those that was from 35 and up would come a little earlier to sit in my class. Well, it was it was it was sort of popular. The, the, The class was actually held. Uh, in a classroom setting and, uh, you know, study to show yourself approved. And, you know, when I look back now, I was one of those kids that, you know, I always had, I was a why, a why child. I want to know why. So I ran across some things that were not part of the concordance. Mm -hmm. And I began to study things of the law, the so-called lost books and uh, cross-referencing a lot of stuff, you know, when was this actual book written, you know, who wrote it, right. things like that, and it was from a cultural perspective, <clears throat> which was basically, this is, this is 1992, you know, 1993, this is really at the end of 92 when uh, the popularity was growing. So by the beginning of 1993, and, and most notably February 93, this is when uh one of the senior deacons, you know, they'd come in, they'd stand by the door, listen to the class, they'd move it to the next zone and stuff like that. Well, I noticed he would come, he would sit a little bit long, and he would just listen. 
So one particular Sunday, he brought the pastor in. And the pastor just listened to me for about less than seven, less than ten minutes. Nothing was said. Tuesday, which is at the new member orientation, and, 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 and you know, I was working in corporate at the time. And I would leave corporate because I worked the evening shift. And I had a lot of freedom as a supervisor. So I, I left corporate and took my lunch break to come to the new member orientation at the church on Tuesday night. Because once you, you know, said, you know, how they tell you, come to Jesus while the blood is warm in your vein. And then on Tuesday, they would tell them to come in for an orientation. So I would be there on Tuesday just to watch those coming into the orientation because they would offer them Sunday school based upon their age. Well, they called me in the office, had a conversation. They noticed what I've been teaching. They had my paperwork. Uh, they were just t speaking that what I was teaching was not in alignment with the church or the concordances of, of teaching and things like that. And, you know, my case was people wanted to know, study to show yourself approved. My people were perished from a lack of knowledge and all this type of stuff. And while I was explaining this, the pastor was like, you know, I'm done. I've said my what I needed to say. So the senior deacon and I walked outside and uh, basically they had told me I can't teach that, that I had to stick with the concordance or just give up teaching the class. So the brother took me outside and we was talking. And while I was explaining to him, he was just kind of like and he had a little smile on his face. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Brother Steve, that's who I was known as, Brother Steve. I need for you to understand one thing about Christians and church. And this brother was the grand master of the lodge, of a particular lodge. I won't say which one. And he said to me, Christians are not here to know. Christians are here to believe. At that point, this frying pan went over my head. And it's like I got it. I was hurt because that was my third church in two years. I'm thinking I'm the devil, something wrong with me and all that kind of stuff. And after that, I remember leaving the church and I went to a big park in Houston called Herman Park. Right next to Mill Outdoor Theater and I was sitting on the bench because that was the area I would go to walk and kind of stretch. They had a little exercise bar. So I just went over there. I had on my, my tie, my shirt. And man, I had an emotional moment. And I heard this voice. I know this sounds like some sci-fi stuff. And the voice came in if it was male or female, but it was, it was more of a vibration. It says, now you can do what I want you to do. I turned around. My left side was a blue jay. I turned around on this side. It was a squirrel. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, now, you know, fast forward almost 30 years later, a blue jay represents the proper use of power. And a squirrel represents preparation, you know, the ability to prepare. You know, a squirrel is in constant work for itself. Uh, uh, the, the blue jay actually operates within a family structure. If you got one blue jay, there's a family of them. But a squirrel works independently. And I kind of, you know, you know, years later, uh, I, I put a lot of that together. But that particular moment was a very definitive moment for me. Now, I'll say this here. I don't have a problem with Christianity. I do have a problem with certain concepts of it. But it's not me to judge if it's right or wrong for you. The issue I have 
is with most Christians because they have not done their homework. And they're operating the same way that that 33rd degree grandmaster told me. They just here to believe. Christians think they know. Most Christians know nothing. They line up their knowledge as to be able to reference and quote scriptures and books. But when you ask them to speak from the heart and their spirit and their higher self, they stumble. Because they put more power outside of themselves waiting for someone to come back to validate their redemption. Christians are dying daily and never think about the redemption to wherever they get to when they get to wherever they come from. Right. Mm. Yeah. I say. Right. So after coming out of the church, uh, studying with Tassetti under the teachings of Dr. Ben, why Ifa? What was it about Ifa that drew you in? Dr. Ben and the elders, uh, we were, the, 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 our head lodge was based out of Harlem. The brother that taught us locally uh, was, a, was a very brilliant brother. Um, just, he had a full name, but we just called him Brother Jabadi. And Jabadi provided you know, the curriculum that was set up. Brother Jabadi, he just brought a lot of sacred science, you know, how things come in existence, how they operate within existence, and things of that nature. Well, I had a particular situation at my corporate job that basically was supposed to get me fired. And I'm sitting here with all the teachings of, you know, Sara Set, you know, I got, you know, I know all the works of Memphite theology and Patai, you know, we're doing all this work. So here I am, and I'm wondering how can this, because see, I'm, I'm dealing with people in corporate that can't hold a candle to what I know. But they have a power and a position to dictate whether I'm going to be working there or not. And I've, I just found that as a very, very conflicting. And so um, I was talking to my teacher about it, and he said to me, he said, uh, if you want to, you know, if you're looking for an answer for that, he told me, say, Patak can't help you. Mm-hmm. He said, you need to go see this guy. And I said, okay. And he was telling me about Ifa. And I said, Ifa? He said, yeah. I, I thought Ifa was E-F-A-H. <laughs> you know, and then when I Googled it back when this was when email and Google searching was very, very, very young. I put in E5 when he told me it came up the International Federation Association. It was nothing there. And um, but I went to go see this Babalao. He did a reading. He said, yep, you're in trouble with your job. He said, yep, looks like they're going to fire you. But here's what we go do. I, I need for you to do this. He did a ritual. I won't go into detail, but he said, when you go to work on Monday, tell the truth. And I say, man, if I tell the truth, I'm fired. He said, just tell the truth. Got to work Monday. My director was there and uh, sat down in his office and he began to say, you know, a situation occurred last week. I worked for the newspaper and he said, you know, on this particular press and so and so this and, you know, they say they didn't see you. And I probably they probably didn't. I mean, it was the truth. I wasn't there. I used to lead a job and I would go out to speakers. I would go over to the library. I would go to the museum because I was in. I was on fire with the knowledge of African spirituality and history. 
And so uh, I neglected one of my duties and some, something happened and the cats, they beat me to come back to work. So I came back to work. So basically uh, he said, just tell the truth. When the director came in and he said, you know, this is what happened. Uh, and uh, he said, I need to, let me look at the file. And he looked on the right side of his desk, left side of his desk. He looked behind him. There was another desk behind him. So he then asked the secretary. He said, where was that file on, on, on Mackie that I asked you to put on? She said, I put it on your desk on Friday. And you said, okay. And you peeped that. She said, you looked at it and you just left it down. He said, well, has anybody else been? She said, no, you're the only one got a key to the office. Apparently the file disappeared from right off his desk. And he was scrambling because apparently... The file was the only thing he knew, but he hadn't looked at it. And so uh, because he couldn't remember all what was in it and anything like that, he was he said, well, well, eventually he said, well, guy, all I'm going to say is just watch your back. Be here on time and, you know, just pay close attention. I said, OK, <laughs> <laughs> he said, all right, you can go. And I left. When I walked out, I said, whatever that happened, I need to know that. Right. <laughs> and I went back to my teacher, Brother Jabadi, and he told me, he said, well, if you really want to understand Kemet in its totality, you're going to have to backdoor it. And I say, backdoor it? He said, yeah, backdoor it with Ifa. Now, I won't go into what, how long it takes to become a priest in the traditional Kemetic system. And... Uh, with Ifa, you initiate it, but it's, it's still a lifelong classroom. Right. But there are certain levels in protocol that you go through with Ifa where you're able to practice with certain things as opposed to others. <laughs> so on the podcast, I, I've shared my moment of when I knew this Ifa thing was for real. And I always say it was the first divination you did because O'Shayun was telling me, you was telling me all this stuff that you had no business knowing. And I was like, <laughs> I'm a skeptic. My first, I don't care what it is. My first thing is to be like, yeah, right, come on. <laughs> so I, my whole thing when I, you know, I got the reading was, I'm approved to O'Shayun that he was tripping. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you was a snake oil salesman and you done hustled him. <laughs> And I remember you telling me about a um, thyroid issue that I had, that I had just found out at the doctor like a week or so earlier. Mm -hmm. And it was that moment um, where I was like, oh, yeah, this is for real. Right. And just what you said, I was like, oh, yeah, I need that. Mm -hmm. Was that moment for you the moment where you knew this EFI thing was for real or, or did you need something else? Was it something else that came later that you were like, oh, yeah, now I'm convinced? It, it at that point, and, and you know, I, I work the way I work now is that I go back and look at things, even back at high school, college, you know, you know, what what was actually happening. And for me, I had completed nine years of being out of the church. When I went through this incident, it was it was right at the beginning of a ninth year, a nine year cycle which represents death and change or necessary endings for new beginnings. And so that particular incident was the stepping stone for me. I stayed with Tassetti, but I was also studying 
when I was visiting this particular Babalao's temple. Well, the cat was brilliant at his craft, but he had a very, very bad character and attitude, which I didn't like. So I left out of there right around January 2003. Ninety days later, and this is after I'm done with Ifa, you know, in that year and a half period, I'm done with Ifa, and this is where I then meet my Aluo through a friend, Dr. Pagan. And uh, I remember when I called him, he said to me, because it was, a, it, was, it was funny how it happened. I had met this guy who told me that if I want to study Ifa, then I could, I need to meet Dr. Pega, which was his godfather. Well, he said he'll be coming to town. I don't know when, but I'll let you know. Well, what I didn't realize, I never had this guy's information. He never had mine. But he had the information of a friend of mine who he told but neglected not to tell me. But that was a young lady in the previous temple. Her and I had a good relationship because we had the same birthday. She called me and told me the book that they can't read because this particular Bible, I wouldn't let them read anything. But I could. And I, she was a priest. I wasn't. So I was reading the Sacred Fire Oracle. And she said the author of that book is in town. So what I did was I hunted around for this other guy's information. And when I called him, he said, man, we've been looking for you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, Baba Pega has been here for a couple of weeks. He's leaving tomorrow. And I said, wow. So he said, let me see, because it was like 7 o'clock at night. And remember, I'm at work. And he says, hold on. And I can hear him through the phone, not a cell phone, a house phone. And he said, Baba, this is the guy I was telling you about. And I heard Baba pick it through the phone. He said, yes, tell him to come. I need to meet him. Man, I left work, went over there, got a reading, and it was just like y'all with me. From the time he dropped that chain and started telling me, I'm like, who faxed him my information? <laughs> right. And he told me after the reading, 15, 20-minute reading, and it was really overwhelming. Uh, this is about now 8.30 in the evening. And uh, I would say, well, I appreciate it. And he gave me his number and said, I'll be in touch. And uh, he said, well, you're going. I said, I got to go back to work. He said, why don't you stay for dinner? And the two people that, that was hosting him said, yeah, you're welcome to stay. So I stayed, ate dinner. He said, what's your questions? And like Sam, Sheung, you know, all these questions. And, and I was, and he answered every one of them. And he would say, you have any more questions? And I said, well, I know it's late. It was about maybe 10 o'clock then. Wow. And uh, he said, any more questions? I said, I said, Bob, I appreciate it. It's late. I know you got to leave tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it's just, I just appreciate the time you gave me at this last minute. And he said, he said, yes, I am tired, but he said, uh, I have a little, he said, like, I have a little more energy. You have any more? And I asked, I asked about maybe one or, one or two questions, which he elaborated on long. And the lady said, Bobby, you really need to get some sleep. You really need to want. And I told him, I said, you need to wind it down. You know, I said, let me, you know, and I'll, I appreciate everything. So he told me, he said, I was supposed to meet you. 
He says, so I want you to call me, blah, 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 blah. This was probably in the spring of 2003. He told me he'd be back that summer. He came back that summer. We spoke. Uh, he told me he'd be back in the fall season, came back in the fall season. We spoke again. But in between that, we talked on the phone here and there. And I was really excited, taking a lot of notes. I was still with Tysetti. What he was telling me was helping me with my homework in Tysetti. Because I was doing comparative study with Orishas and Netters. By the fall season is when he told me, he said, you, you're already a priest. You just need to go through the ceremony. So... I then told my God brothers, uh, which is now the Alatunshe, Baba Shango Dare, uh, the, Balo, the Balo Sharun, which is Baba Todd, he's the chief. Uh, I, I went to my 401k and took out a bunch of money, and we all got initiated. I mean, you know, them Negroes paid me back. <laughs> but You probably had to hit up Baba Dare a couple times. Yeah, you know, but that was like around <laughs> November. So January, we all went through and got our Orisha. And in my Ita, he said that Obatala was not satisfied and Oshun was not satisfied to I get Oshun, become a priest of Oshun. So three months after I got Obatala, I became a priest of Oshun. In that, because my old dude being Eji Ogbe, he said I had to come to Tefa. So that's why in one year I went to Nigeria. Uh, my mother turned 85 that year. Uh, we gave a big party. Valentine's Day was her birthday, so it was a Sunday. And uh, the very next day was uh, the 15th. And so that's when I took off to Nigeria, my first trip uh, in Jan uh, February 2005. And uh, for me, that was going there and just being in that dirt, being with those people, and being with him and just being a student was by the time I came back, I was done with Tysetti because after we got initiated as priest, Orisha priest, the uh, outside of Brother Jabati, the rest of the brothers created a lot of tension. Oh, they called us all kind of names and microwave priests and, you know, like we took shortcuts, but Jabati knew why we did it and he was the one that sent me to Ifa. right so and the rest is uh as you would say it's just, that's the rest of the journey so it's still <laughs> ongoing right so for our listeners out there that don't know anything about Ifa, what is Ifa, and how would you explain Ifa to someone that has never heard the name before well to tell you what it is i also have to tell you what it is not when you look at Ifa, it means in its many definitions, the wisdom of nature, the natural order of things, universal truth. That is not regulated to a group of people of southwest Nigeria called the Yoruba. Indigenous people around the planet have been practicing Ifa or the natural order, which we can tell you many stories of collective consciousness of what was happening with the original people that they call Aborigines of Australia, simultaneously what was going on around the Giza Plateau, what was going on in the Rift Valley, 
uh, what was going on in the West, what was happening over here in South America at that time with the, with North, the Mayans. What you have is a collective consciousness, and that collective consciousness was all tied into the philosophical perspective and the perception of how people live within their own geography and climate, which produce their cosmology. And so Ifa, uh, some would disagree, but this is from my studies. It comes from the Nile Valley, Fa. When you begin to look at the ways and the practices of a lot of West Africans, it corresponds and lines up with the Nubian people. Now, that's important to understand because in its inception, that's Ifa. Now, when you get to the Yoruba people, remember what I said, your culture, your philosophical perspective and perception, your climate, your geography shapes how you see meaning the tools of the desert will always be too different than the tools of the rainforest. And if you live coastal, that will be different if you live mountainous. So spirits of spirits, how you define them is how you define them. So the, 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 the whole premise of what is Ifa, you're asking what is Ifa in its general, or are you asking what is Ifa in regards to the Yoruba people? Um, I think it would be closer to the Yoruba people because that's the way we now, know now, it. And see, and see, the thing is, now you're getting into something called Sheshe, right. which simply means tradition, or we follow the ways of our ancestors. And for me, following the ways of your ancestors, for us to, to follow the ways of our ancestors and practice Sheshe within the tradition of the Yoruba people, we're going to have to skip about 300 years of our ancestry to tie ourselves back to a way that we were before the Atlantic slave trade. Okay. To not go far off track, we're not born in this country, in these states at this time, to be Shay Shay from 300 years ago. We're born now. We're 30, 40, 50 years of age. We're the descendants of slaves. We have been colonized, imperialized. Our tool that we call Ifa has been shaped, molded differently. We're no longer uh, a stone that's been shaped and molded to look like an arrow. We have a socket set. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so things are different. Ifa, being the wisdom of nature, nature is what it is. And this is very important to understand. The Sahara was once a very fertile area. It's no longer. Egypt was once a dynasty. It's no longer. Nature, like God, is change. And so, if I was to take Ifa and to put it into a capsule called me and you and you and her and him, it would have to involve a sense of change as an individual. Your growth, your vibration, your elevation. True enough, at 30, you're not the person you were at 10. And 10 years ago, at 20, you were not the person you were at 15. Right. 
your belief of what you, if someone showed a tape of something you said 20 years ago and tried to hold you accountable, I don't understand why people just don't tell the truth. Say, I don't think that way anymore. Right. End of story. Well, but you said, I said a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. I said Santa Claus came down the chimney at six years old. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I no longer believe that. And so for me, to tell anyone out there that's listening about Ifa, the most beautiful thing that you can embrace with Ifa is knowing that in accord with the laws of nature, you have the ability, it is your birthright, to raise your vibration up with a consciousness as opposed to just going through emotion. So with all of the uh, Orisha that we speak about and Ifa and the netters in uh, Egypt, what do you say to people that say that we practice polytheism? Well, they practice polytheism. <laughs> <laughs> when you start thinking Jesus and God is one, that's polytheism. Right. When you start talking about the words of the Apostle Paul and you start naming temples after uh, saints and stuff like that, that's polytheism. So for me, and it's not a long discussion as opposed to something I probably would have had 20 years ago with a person. And I told them they haven't done their homework. Especially when people tell me things like, well, I don't believe in polygamy. According to spirit, if the person you married was no longer was the, wasn't a virgin, they're carrying the signature and a contract of other people. So. When you look at certain things fundamentally, like to consummate a marriage, we've consummated with a lot of people. This is like many marriages. So to me, that's poly. The prefix poly was polytheism and polygamy, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) you know, so. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dwell myself, I wouldn't dwell too much on the conversation. And I'm glad we started talking about, I guess, misconceptions in Ifa. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions or misunderstandings about Ifa is animal sacrifice. I know when I um, first found out about Ifa <laughs> and I came to uh, Ojeun's hand of Ifa, I was like, oh, they wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of the first questions I asked Baba too. Do y'all practice uh, animal sacrifice? Through email, I asked him. Yeah, that. yeah. yeah I, I, I was, I mean, I had no concept of it. Like, I, I was like, oh, that's, that's different, for the lack of a better word. Um, why do we practice um, animal sacrifice um, in our tradition, and what's the importance of that blood? Well, what you're talking about is concepts of alchemy, fusion. You're talking about ritual, basically ritual. Things that are used in ritual are things that are, that are often looked upon as what holds up this dimension. When you start looking at plants, uh, minerals, elements, blood, we all have it. It's all in our bodies. It's in our buildings. It's, in, it's all around us. Those concepts, those uh, uh, things, 
that we look upon as crazy or wild, but it's alchemy, it's fusion. And who introduced it? God. Because we're like little gods. And if that's what God used in those first five days to create, then what we do with ritual is to create or recreate. And everything that I just named is also using procreation. Now, true enough, you can make a case for people being vegan, but you still need certain things of tools to recreate. Now, I'm not the biggest fan on using blood because I think some people have run amok and that they want to sacrifice an animal because they want somebody to fall in love with them. They want to sacrifice an animal to get this job. They want to sacrifice an animal to control the people at their job or control the people at the house. I don't necessarily believe in things like that. I take it very seriously. And so for me, part of the alchemical process, part of the fusion of moving things and directing energy, there are times where you need blood. Now, uh, indigenous people would use the blood of those animals that they would also eat. So we may cringe at the idea of eating a pigeon, but you have to look at people of those cultures they eat it and they, they call it, I think, Schwab. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we go, you know, we don't believe in sacrificing chicken, but we love to hang out at the wing stop and right. get lemon pepper chicken wings. You know, mm-hmm. who prayed with that chicken? I don't really get off into the semantics of that. You know, the Jews can, the rabbi can come along and bless the meat and it's kosher and the Muslim can come along and bless the meat and it's halal and you know, and so on. But if, if an African comes along and bless a meeting, calls it Ashe, then, you know, we're witches, we're devils, we're demons. And this is coming from our own people. So um, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but I, I know that there are times when it's necessary, especially when it involves a life-saving thing. You know? All right. Mm-hmm. So my favorite part of Ifa is... Hmm? Ours. Our favorite part of Ifa is our first love. It was the first thing that we fell in love with, the right. reason why we are <laughs> priests today, and that's divination. Right. How important is divination in our practice? Divination is that, that well, first of all, let me say there are certain tenets of Ifa that people forget. First of all, the divine spirit, which we call Ori, there is a thing of having good character or behavior. Because if one is a practitioner and has access to certain materials and concepts and rituals and the ability to change or redirect energy, that is or that can become a very powerful position to where you can affect people's lives. So your behavior is impeccable. It, it, it has to be the staple. The divination is, if you go into Nigeria, the divination is important 
But people who go for divination are more in tune with the Ebo or the ritual because that's what's going to change what they heard. In America, we want to know and hear. We ain't worried about no Ebo. <laughs> right. Because most of us, or some of us, we're not going to change anyway. We just want to know. And for me, divination, as people would say, Baba Femi is a master at divination. I never sought out to become a master at divination. The people made me a master at divination because American people, African-American people pushed me. When you go to Nigeria and you get a reading from an elder, at best, it's about five minutes. And then that's Ebo. You may get to ask two questions. Laquita Bonifa Jackson come to me for a reading. She wants to know, I want to know, is my cousin's boyfriend good for her? And my, why would you need to know? Well, because she never picks the right guy. And I have to say, well, what makes you think she did at this time? Well, she thinks it's the right guy. But you just said she never picks the right guy. They want to know what happened five years ago at this club when the police came. Who told it? <laughs> See, you're dealing with a whole different way of thinking for people in this country. Your divination, you have to be on it. Now, when you start setting the precedent of what you're going to say and what you're not going to say, you're going to limit the amount of people coming to see you because this society, this culture is based upon a certain sense of, of, of wanting to know and having to know things. We hear it in our comedians. We hear it in our TV shows, our media. It's all about who got shot, why and when. You're talking about people. So when someone comes to you for divination, most people think you're psychic and you have to let them know, I'm not psychic. And you may give a DJ say, let me ask you a question. Did you recently use your job? Oh, you tell me. <laughs> okay, I'm not psychic. Right. That's something going on with your work and your job that lets me know there's a shift coming. So I'm asking you, and I can better explain to you what that may be. So we have to, we have to develop ways, and that's, I think that's what I've done because I am a people person and just listening. You know, going back to corporate, I got all kind of awards for effective listening, effective speaking and things like that. So it's been a plus for me to listen to people. And when people tell me stories, a lot of times they're talking, I'm looking at the Odoos and I'm looking at stories from this Odoo. Does it match what they're saying or they're giving me a new story to go with this Odoo? So I make notes. So when you come to me for a reading in a, in a year and this Odoo comes down, I've written down notes from previous clients, and I may ask you a question. And when you tell me, yeah, now I know certain old dudes can deal with Asian people, European people, uh, uh, folks that live in New Orleans, folks that live in the East, I can now determine your geography of where you come from. Because that is the language of old dude. Now, can a Nigerian do that? I don't know. But I know that I can. And so for me, I, I, I think mastering those types of things it's part of who and what I am in my journey in Ephah. So divination is the highlight 
especially on this side of the water, is because of our culture to want to know. So you've traveled all over the world, done rituals for people, ceremonies, uh, readings. What are some of the similarities that you find in the people that you do work for? Whether they be black, whether they be white, and wherever they are in the world, what are some of the similarities that you find with those type of people? Well, fundamentally, whether it's Australia, Europe, South America, Africa, the Caribbean, it doesn't matter. Family, health, money, career, love, you know, enemies is a staple for every living, breathing human that comes for a reading. And it's, 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 it's amazing to me because when I hear these stories of racial incidents and wars and people discriminating against other people, I shake my head because in the, in the, in the, in the, in the common world, everybody's concerned about those things that I just mentioned. And so for me, uh, one, of the, one of the most important things that have showed up is just, again, going back to something I said earlier, the geography and the climate can produce how people think and act. And I've noticed the culture of Southern California as opposed to Northern California. I've noticed how the West Coast and the East Coast and the Gulf Coast is different. I've noticed how the Gulf Coast, Texas, and the, and, and the Gulf Coast, Florida is different. How the people of Trinidad are different than the people of Barbados. And how Brazil is different than those folks in Argentina. They're same continent, different area. And for me, I think when I go around and I see certain Odus that will consistently fall when I'm in New Orleans and I'll see Odus that will consistently fall when I'm in Seattle. I can literally tell a person in Seattle with Odus from New Orleans that say, you got any background, got any connection to New Orleans? They say, yeah, how do you know? Because New Orleans Odu is falling for you way up in Seattle. And see, for me, well, why is that important? The question is, why did you move? Because if it's fallen, it's something either you need to cut from or something you need to go back to. So we talk a lot about the self, know thyself, uh, the inner self. Mm -hmm. How important is what we call the ori in our tradition? How important is the self? For those that have really studied, it is the most important thing. For those that have not studied, Woe be unto you, <laughs> because you are Ori, you are divine spirit coming into flesh. What are you here for? You can't say I'm here to serve Orisha. You say that now you're back in church. You came here. If there is a serving, that is a service to your fellow brothers and sisters. You don't really come inherently to serve, but to do whatever it is you contracted to do. Now, in that doing, you may be providing a service. <clears throat> when we say. People say, well, you're supposed to worship your ancestors. I ain't never worshiped mine. I love them, but I ain't never worshiped. There's a reverence to them. A reverence means to revere or to 
hold tightly to their time and what they brought to you. It should be the same thing with Orishas. Maya Luo once told me Orishas are like unemployed people sitting in the unemployment office waiting for you to give them a job. You have a chief Orisha that is here to assist you, and that is the best Orisha in conjunct with your characteristics, attributes, and functions, and personality, and journey, and contract <clears throat> to better serve you as you go forward. But you are always Ori, you're always divine spirit. So when you transition, Shango doesn't go back to Orun. Your Ori does. Shango stays right here in your cousin who's Shango, your brother who's Shango, your sister, sister's husband who's Shango, the little lady down there who fights it at Shango. Shango that you used is what your Ori chose to use to get you to fulfill your journey and reach your destination. I see. Uh, we also talk a lot about uh, ritual and sacrifice. Uh, those seem to be two pillars in Ifa. It seems that you can't have those two and that you can't have Ifa without those two. So uh, can you define for us ritual and you've already told us sacrifice, but can you define for us ritual and how important is ritual in Ifa? Well, let me say this. I hear what you're saying, but for me, it's the opposite. The most important thing is sacrifice. Matter of fact, it says in several Odus, most notably Rosu Iwori, human beings cannot live without sacrifice. Meaning sometimes you got to give up something. Sometimes you got to go somewhere you don't want to go, do something you don't want to do. Hell, be with somebody you don't want to be with. Work somewhere you don't want to work. That's sacrifice. A ritual actually connotates elements implements certain things. Now, somebody can say, I ritualistically get up every morning, go to Starbucks, and get a caramel macchiato upside down with soy grande. <laughs> That's their ritual. Right. That's a ritual. Right. That don't sound like a sacrifice. The sacrifice is, it's snowing outside, I can't go. But I really need that because every morning I drink that, I have a blessed day. So what's your sacrifice? I can't drive my car. I got to walk. So I'm going to make a sacrifice to walk to Starbucks to get that caramel macchiato upside down with soy grande. <laughs> so a lot of times, sacrifice and ritual are looked upon as one, but actually, in my, in my opinion, they're two different things. So I've seen you answer this question on another podcast. Uh, I want to say that the podcast talked about Jesus and can Jesus help us and can Ifa help us? So uh, I'm going to pose to you this the same question. Not only as black people, but as a society of as a whole, can Ifa help us? Absolutely. You know, and let me clarify some about Jesus. And the same thing I would say about any deity, avatar, or eponymous character brought upon by a major religion. And that is the mind is a beautiful thing, but it's very fragile. If you put your mind to the fact that a coconut tree is your God or your avatar and it gets you what you need, I, I can't argue with that. But the human spirit, the Ori, is not really bound to work like that 
and it's what I call is total truth. At some point, you have to become your Jesus. You have to resurrect. You have to go through the motions or i.e. be crucified. Now, when you ask the question, can Ephi save us? Remember, Ephi is the wisdom of nature, the natural order of things, universal truth. How you operate with nature, how you operate with the natural order, and how you operate within universal truth. If you can do that, then Ephi works because it reveals that to you. See, the problem with people who stepped into Ephi and then step out of Ephi or struggle with Ephi because they say, well, nothing works. You're talking about ritual. You're talking about divination. You're talking about sacrificing. No, 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 no. Ephi is the body. And if you can just understand purpose, if you can understand the protocol to reach your destiny, that is your salvation. That is what elevates you. Rituals are help to make sure you stay on that path if you get off. A divination is a, is a checking in to see where you are or why something has occurred or something has not occurred. Divination, a good divination is 80% confirmation of what you already know or have been feeling. So can Ephi save us? I think Ephi can save us from its protocol of knowing self as opposed to Christianity of knowing a deity. Because in Ephi, the deity put us here to know itself. In Christianity, you don't, you don't have to worry about knowing self. You just have to be dutiful to the deity. Now, a lot of Christians are coming to the grips that I've met of saying, I love God, I love Jesus, but I don't know what I'm here to do. And you're 55 years of age. I got a 25-year-old practitioner God child that knows exactly what they're here to do. Now, they're going to have bad hair days. They're going to have ups and downs just like the other person. But the one thing that they have is purpose. Absolutely. So while we're going to shift gears a little bit as we start winding down, a uh, couple more questions for you. Um, <laughs> so my question for you is, as we go back to the name of the podcast, uh, Who Made Y'all Priest? Why did you make O'Shea, or excuse me, Ifa O'Shea, <laughs> as we're being formal? <laughs> Why did you make O'Shea a priest? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, here's, here's the thing. First and foremost, what makes you a priest, you have to find out, well, what is a priest? A doctor is a priest. A lawyer is a priest. A judge is a priest. You have many crafts and many professions that line up with what a priest is. In a lot of ways, a good farmer is a priest. Uh, an astrologist, a numerologist, <coughs> they're priests. Men and women who practice and study science, sacred science, who act accordingly within the framework of that craft and how they elevate to help others 
and or regulate a community is considered a priest. Now, how do you look at the potential of people? I've looked at the potential of a lot of people. In OIDSI, we have over 80 priests. Probably half of those have a better understanding of what that is than the other half. Well, the other half are young. When you become a priest, or let me go back, when I see the potential in you, part of that potential that I see in you is that through conversation and references, that, that is part of what I look at. The other, the other part of it is, believe it or not, do you have the ability to get out of your own way when it comes to working with and helping others? even if those others are just your family. Because every priest does not come into a craft to have quote-unquote godchildren. And I, and I think that's something that needs to be understood, that all priests don't have to have godchildren. I think some priests are not here to have godchildren. I think priests are, some are just here to be about their craft and their work. When I looked at you, the, and, and, and you reminded me a lot of myself, you asked a lot of questions. And you were able to comprehend and retain a lot of the information. When I looked at where you came from and how you were following uh, a craft, the fact that your background, uh, you weren't hiding about bad choices and mistakes. Those are the things that shape, make, and mold who you are in the moment. And you were willing to be open about that. And so for a teacher, for a leader, it's not about you filling out an application. It's often how you present yourself and the way that you presented yourself. And just like we say in the law, you, you take a, you take a, a, a rough ashlar, a, rough, you know, a stone, and you shape it. We all come in jagged and rough. But there's something in that jagged and rough that you know that there's gold in the middle once you polish it and shape it. And that's what I've seen not only in yourself but a few others. True enough, there are priests who are struggling. Some priests have become priests that simply just save their own life. They need to be marked as a priest to be able to uh, overcome a health issue, uh, an issue of death surrounding them, uh, many things that they may be getting ready to step into with family or marriage or something even heavy. So don't just say, we don't just say, or I don't just say, you need to become a priest for this one reason. There's many reasons to become a priest. Mm -hmm. So uh, same question for uh, Ephi Foray. I've heard many people question his priesthood uh, on, <laughs> <laughs> on, on several occasions. So <laughs> what, was it, what was it about uh, Ephi Foray that you saw in him that... Uh, thought that you should make him a priest? Well, first of all, let me say it wasn't because he had his money. <laughs> right. Because it wasn't about money. Right. I mean, it's the same principle that, that applies. And then one of the things that I look at with, for you and uh, uh, Fafore and also for Fatun Mache, mm -hmm. the three of you all presented yourselves the same way I was and how I presented my two God brothers. So what I saw was 
something of being recalled of 15 plus years ago. Uh, I look at you as more myself, Fafore as more uh, Shango Dare, and uh, Awo Fatumishe as my God brother Baba Todd. And so we came knowing but not knowing. And Baba saw something in us. And I've seen that in you all, and I've, uh, you know, I acted upon it. There were some people that thought you guys were too young, that thought you guys were not ready. And I laughed because that's the same thing they said about me, Baba Shango, and uh, Baba Kaide. Mm-hmm. Same thing. So it's, a, it's something you trust. That's it. So don't, so don't, don't let me down. <laughs> we got you, Baba. We work. We got you. We, we got working. you. Um, last question, and we'll get you out of here. So, we are dedicating season two to the divine feminine. As it was told to all ten of us <laughs> when Ebodu. Right. On several different occasions. On several, yeah, before Ebodu, <laughs> right. you know. And then once we got here, that um, we had some things that we had to, to work out with the um, divine feminine. So we kind of been on the journey, kind of mm-hmm. trying to figure that out. So how would you define the divine feminine and how important is that in, you know, our life? From, from two different ways, maybe three. And going back to what the divine feminine was when I was brought into priests. And... Um, as a member of Ta City, going through its initiation, the rituals to become, you know, part of the organization, part of the craft, um, we were taught that a young boy uh, in the area of Aswan, Nubian country, was taken at seven years of age. And was taken away by elders and began the teachings of the mysteries of nature. Everything in nature is feminine and sexual. That was my first introduction into the divine feminine. That's why we call it divination, it's to be divine. Divination, the process of divination is first feminine. You have to go back in to bring something out which is masculine. The process and the balance, the equilibrium of of feminism and masculine is the divine feminine. So, in this culture of Western society, we've been taught not, you know, we can go back in antiquity and we can see the mother. We can see Horace sitting on the lap of a left naked breast. We see the mother. We say mother or mata or matter, or meta. 
we see nature or netter. And we see nature as the Greeks would call it physicals or meta, mother, meta, matter, mother, physical, mother, physical, unseen, seen. To balance the both is the divine feminine. So that's what I was first taught. Nowadays, it's going on a definition of itself. I'm not totally in disagreement with it. I just think this is just part of an, another aspect of the Aquarian age. The divine feminine, from what they're saying today, to the best I can understand it is, getting in touch with the feminine side of yourself. That is very important. Relationship with our mothers, our sisters, the mothers of our children. But then... What about this woman who needs to embrace the divine feminine? In this society, you know, I was, I was listening to a sister say, we need to go, I would love to go to the African women and teach them about the divine feminine so they can quit letting this matriarchal culture dominate them. And I said, be careful. I'm not saying the patriarchal culture has not run amok in Africa. But there's a lot of those women are very conscious of the fact that they gave permission to a man to be a priest, a chief, an Adaba, and everything else. And their position that they're holding is very good. This is why in a, in a righteous polygamy society, that woman chooses the next wife. And they choose the third wife. That's a divinity. That's a, that's a consciousness. That's not patriarchal dominated. So we have to look at things based upon our cultural aspect before we start trying to really understand what the divine feminine is. And then there are people who have read Maladoma and spoke about the gatekeepers. Those men who are gay, those women who are gay that actually operate in the equilibrium. There's a natural law as opposed to how something comes into existence and how it exists. That's another show. But the divine feminine for every individual is about balancing the two principles within themselves. Because the, the feminine is the dominant energy. But for her to know itself as itself, it has to give birth to the masculine. So there has to be an equilibrium and a balance. So the divine feminine does not make me become more woman. When people say, I did a, a reading several years ago. Uh, with a, out of the, uh, one of the practices of Hinduism, uh, they call it the human design. And uh, one of the priests, one of the shamans said, he looked at me and he did my work. He said, wow. He said, you have a beautiful balance of the divine feminine. And that was equally portioned. I've had guys ridicule me to say, that guy, that's a handsome fellow. Brother ripped and cut. He, would, he is what the sister would call fine. Man, you can't say that, man. You know, they think you gay. They can think whatever the hell they want to think. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have a problem with my sexuality. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So we can't just regulate the feminine to sexuality. Right. There's a, 
everything is nature and sexual because everything is about procreation and cycles. That's feminine. But the feminine can't know herself or itself until it has its opposite. And that's what, to me, the divine feminine is. I say. I think, I, I think we got us a platinum plaque on, uh, on YouTube coming. Man. Oh, yeah. I think, we, <laughs> I think we do, too. Yeah, we got us a platinum yeah, plaque. Yeah, this was a, a great episode. Baba, uh, you did what we thought you were going to do. Right. I say. I say. We appreciate you spending some time with us, too. We appreciate you. Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing. You're making me proud. Thank you. You're making me proud. Thank you. Thank you. I say. So there you have it. That's the answer to the question that is our name. Who made y'all priest? You got to meet the man who made us priest. Um, so whatever we do that you don't like, he's responsible. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay with it. <laughs> so um, to end this, one thing that Baba talked about was growth and evolution. And one of the things that Oshayun and I want to do is we want to continue to grow and evolve, not only in ourselves, but in our podcast right. as a reflection of ourselves. So as stated earlier, we're going to dedicate this um, season two to the Divine Feminine. Now, in season one, you heard us speak about things that we spent 10 plus years studying um, some of those things. And then you also heard us talk about our own personal journeys and our stories as we kind of traverse this thing called spirituality. This season, we're going to do something slightly different. Again, we're talking about that evolution and change. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a discussion about something that we quite haven't mastered yet and that you guys will be able to go on that journey with us. And then you will be able to see in real time how we grow and evolve wow. or our failure to grow and evolve. <laughs> Um, because we're not afraid to demonstrate that to you guys. So as we have conversations with people throughout the year, we're going to have this conversation about the divine feminine, because that is something that we are trying to understand more and to grow and evolve in that way. So we hope that you come in every week and you tap in. Uh, we greatly appreciate you for checking us out. Uh, we'll see you next week. Again, always remember, life's a journey. Don't forget the map. Ashe. <laughs> <laughs>